if there's sexism, racism, homophobia, whatever in society, then why would the club be exempt from experiencing this kind of structural discrimination, right? Hey, streamers and dreamers. I am Kika Loma and you are listening to The Week by Telecom Electronic Beats. It's Thursday, October 19th, and this is your weekly update on music, culture and what's next. Clubs are places where people go to let loose, celebrate and explore. On the best nights, you can forget your worries and experience ecstatic moments of communal and personal expression outside of the pressure of our daily lives. But it's not always bright and happy, safe and secure. Clubs can sometimes feel as risky and threatening as they are freeing, especially for marginalized groups of people. This is just one reason why safer spaces and awareness concepts in clubs have become an increasingly important topic. When people go out, there's a stronger sense of the responsibilities that clubs and promoters have to create safer spaces where sexualized violence, racism, homophobia and other forms of bigotry and oppression can be minimized. One person making a significant contribution on this front is Luam Lu Gebramariam. Luam is a Berlin-based diversity consultant and a culture entrepreneur. Amongst many other things, she's an executive board member of the Berlin Club Commission and a co-founder of the Awareness Academy. Recently, Luam also founded her boutique agency, Lem Lem Culture, where she advises companies in the culture sector on diversity, equity and inclusion. We invited her to discuss more of her work with Awareness Academy, the ongoing importance of safer spaces in club culture, and what we can all do to support these structures as individuals and a community. I am glad to have you on this episode. Welcome, Luam. Thank you, Kike. So happy to be here. (laughs) Great to have you. Um, So let's jump in. What actually are safer spaces by your definition? Mm-hmm. That's funny that we're talking about safer because um, I feel like in the in the global context, safer is still very much in use. Um, but I like to say intentional spaces, just from years and years of experience trying to make places safer. It's just that uh, I've come to the realization that no space is per se safe, whatever you do. So saying an intentional space means like we're putting out our values, we're making them explicit, there's a maybe a code of conduct, how we treat each other, and that in the end leads to a, a place becoming more safe in the sense that everybody knows how to behave and how to react and they might even get support um, by staff or by their peers. And so, yeah, that, that would be the definition for me, basically. Okay, and where does the idea of safer or intentional spaces come from? Mm. The ideas actually come like many things from women, black women um, and LGBTQIA communities that haven't had spaces, particularly in the US back in the days, um, where they could just be. And um, yeah, it started out more as a peer-to-peer kind of support, um, being in venues, being in um, political demonstrations. So they basically set up structures where they could assist each other if they were having bad experiences. And and that kind of came over in the early 2000s, um, also mainly by like white feminist um particularly women in Germany that um, yeah set up structures like these during the during the G20 um, demonstrations and alike and yeah they were just peer-to-peer support structures and um, they were aiming mostly also at anti-sexist discrimination and over the years it has become more diverse also in terms of what that actually entails. 
where did the Awareness Academy start and what does it actually currently do right now? Mm. So the start of it was, a lot of it was basically me having a lot of questions. <laughs> I, I was a producer for a queer feminist event in Berlin and and I was new to it and I had questions regarding safety. And uh, I went to different workshops, different panels, and I was basically harassing other members of the club <laughs> commission to answer my questions. They didn't have the answers, but then they were like, you know what, you're asking important questions. Why don't you switch sides and try and answer them from within the organization? So I became a board member and then um, I was engaging in different conversations with stakeholders like police, like um organizations that were assisting marginalized communities in Berlin that were being discriminated also in the club context, bouncers, club owners. And then ultimately, after two years, we have come to the conclusion that just testing at the door would just lead to us finding out what we already know, there is discrimination. But setting up something like the Awareness Academy will actually help people that work in nightlife to um, understand better like their biases, understand better how they can assist marginalized community, how they can be more inclusive. So we got funding and now it's a platform basically where people can go online and educate themselves on their own or we have a very extensive workshop program rolled out over the year and if you work in nightlife or are somehow adjacent to nightlife then you can just enroll in any of the workshops and yeah just basically become a multiplicator of our work yeah and amazing so, yeah. amazing work that you're doing and thank you was it at, was it at all inspired by your own clubbing and or professional experiences um yes of course I guess like as I said it came out of this like wanting to understand how we can be more safe and how we can be more inclusive because Facts be told, like when I started my parties, I just wanted to have fun. I don't know how it is for you. Like I didn't start in nightlife saying, oh, I'm going to create a safer space. I, I was starting out nightlife saying, I want to create a fun space where everybody can, you know, be their authentic selves and listen to music that I like and that they like. So and then questions arose regarding, you know, how can we be like inclusive or how can we be more intentional with what we are about? And mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're also living in a time where people kind of categorize themselves more and more, right? Mm -hmm. For us, we didn't claim to be queer feminists in the beginning, to be honest. It just happened to be like the guests that were there by knowing us and so on, that eventually we had to like be more explicit maybe so people know what it's about. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's how it developed, I guess. Okay. And we've spoken about intentional spaces and safer spaces. What does awareness mean in the context of clubs? Mm -hmm. Awareness um, it, it, at a very ground level means that you understand yourself, you understand your privileges, you understand your identity or you're willing to explore your identity in a club. And um, basically that assists in also understanding boundaries of other people, right? So if I'm not self-aware how I, I might have more privileges to other people, then I, I might also not be understanding of if people experience discrimination. So, um, yeah, so awareness basically means understanding yourself. And also awareness means taking a bit of um, self-accountability or accountability in general for these things. So, And we're obviously talking about in the context of, you know, the cultural sector, clubs, labels, nightlife, music. Do you think this kind of concept of awareness can change the world outside of clubs and parties as well? I think it, it does assist, you know. I like to say 
and that's one reason why I don't call spaces safe or safer anymore is because the club is also only just like a um, a medium of what happens in society, right? If there's sexism, racism, homophobia, whatever in uh, in society, then why would the club be exempt from experiencing this kind of structural discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. So um, And so if we as clubbers say, hey, you know what? We're going to try and be more... Um, sensitive and more mm -hmm. aware of our privileges, our power, our own, um, you know, our own discrimination maybe as well, mm -hmm. then um, basically everybody that gets in contact with it and goes back into, so to speak, real life or day-to-day -day life, they also act as multiplicators, right? They might be more perceptive to um, what people experience at their nine-to-five jobs and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. They can be great allies, so mm -hmm. to speak. Like, um, And I feel like Berlin does exist um, assist people in like eye-opening a little bit in that sense because yeah. um, a lot of people flock to Berlin because they feel like there's this sense of freedom and safe safety, right? So Yeah. I have a question more from, from my perspective actually because, um, you know, having something... Um, you know, this concept of like um, intentional spaces and awareness and you know I think in the past few years we've seen not just kind of the cultural sector take aim for this but also you know institutions and you know some of the maybe the more corporate structures and people that don't necessarily have this this touch point with the club space because I also have to th say that I feel like Berlin can sometimes exist in a, in, a bit of, in a bit of an echo chamber like it feels like we're in a bit of a bubble um, and I've had some experiences where um, I've tried to engage with kind of like people in the corporate side um, of the music industry you know look at things like unconscious bias training awareness like the creation of um safer or intentional spaces and sometimes you can just see in someone's eyes when they switch off <laughs> like where they just don't, don't they don't care they don't engage or it's not a topic that really is interesting for them and it's something that I see you know sometimes on the internet people being like meh like what do they call us like the liberal snowflakes or whatnot always talking about these topics have you ever encountered that when engaging in these topics and and how, how do you kind of navigate that that um trying to keep people engaged who may not necessarily be in, in um be in contact with our community so regularly mm. yeah of course i've experienced that i feel like to begin with when i came into the club commission saying i want to take care of awareness and diversity and i made it on the board kind of last minute in a way <laughs> um i felt like they let me double my little corner it wasn't as prominent it wasn't that people paid attention particularly it wasn't that anybody came to assist but it was more like we're giving you the space to just you know, work on this issue. So that was one experience, I guess. And the more persistent, I guess, it got, the, the more people also understood, you know. And part of it was not basically blaming people for who they are or for their privileges, but rather be like, I understand you have privileges and I, I just want to, you know, maybe assist you in shifting your perspective, what that actually means and how you can be of assistant. And it's not about taking something from somebody Mm -hmm. When we are like, when we are talking about being more diverse, it's really the cake's big enough. It's just like, it's very unevenly distributed. And I'm here to maybe show you ways of how you can be more inclusive. And that has helped. But I mean, when it comes down to the corporates also, like I have decided to open my agency or like my consultancy, knowing that I will be facing a lot of people that maybe don't want to engage in the beginning maybe they're forced even because they've had some issues you know that they, they were made public and so on so um I think to be like open and 
basically pick up people where they are and not accuse them of being per se, dis- like, you know, nobody's per se a sexist or per se a racist. I don't believe that. You know what I mean? Everybody also at the same time has the ability to say something racist or act sexist. You know what I mean? It's just um, the nuances are there. And a lot of times people like to think they're very open, liberal. And that's also part of, you know, our techno uh Berlin bubble is like, oh, we're so free, we're so inclusive, we don't see color problematic, you know what I mean? So um, being able to assist in that conversation without making people um, per se feel like they're criminals or they're like horrible people, that's, you know, that's that's the that's the art that mm. I'm kind of navigating, yeah. I guess. Like, and, you know, most of the days, because I've made a conscious decision of being in that field, I don't mind explaining things over and over again and yeah. trying to rephrase it maybe so people can pick it up and feel like included also, you know? Yeah, I think that's where it, there were the nuances, like the the empathy getting you to, I remember um, in this training, one way where I saw it worked was like, hey, instead of, you know, thinking like us versus them, think about, for example, the disadvantages that East Germany faced versus West Germany faced. And like, you know, even like in terms of the stereotypes of being East German or like the accent or whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you know West Germans are bad people. It just means that there there are certain things in society that have disadvantaged people, um, and you know their experiences and you know some of the stigmas associated with that that you know need to be that people need to be aware of. And I guess it's you know it can transcend uh, many other many other um, you know groups or categorizations of people as well. A hundred percent. I think that's a great example. You know, I think like making it more tangible by giving examples, real life examples of my own or of other people um, helps. Mm. You know, like that's that's what I mean by like if if you're not exposed to somebody that has a mental or physical disability, for example, and, and you know, you never thought about what it means for them to get into a club, you will not think about it. But just like when you do a little exercise saying, okay, think about the club that you're working in and um, your person in the wheelchair, Where, where's the first barrier? And they're like, you know, things like that. And they're like, oh, you know what? Actually, we're not barrier free because when you want to go to the toilet, there are three steps. Why are there three steps? But maybe nobody ever thought about it because they're not affected by it, you know? Mm. So just assisting basically um, to break it down a little bit and in shifting perspectives. That's the that's the goal. Okay. The recent zine by the collective Lekin has a piece called The Awareness Industrial Complex versus Queer Feminist Care in the Rave. And it talks about the evolution of awareness as a concept in Berlin nightlife in the radical left activist scene and how many people now recognize the duty to these spaces and the people in them. Do you notice anything about this evolution um, of awareness in, in our space and its professionalism? Um, and specifically, there's a quote from this piece about how do we continue to reproduce a community of care and consent within the rave, except by demanding a certain degree of ownership and participation from everyone who is present? So, um, yeah. Is, do you, do you, is there anything you notice specifically around the evolution of awareness in, in our culture? I think... I mean, I would say, like, Lekin or me as a person, we've all contributed to this, like, professionalization of, um, you know, awareness, it not only being a topic, but it being such a prominent structure in assisting people. Um, It's always like a fine line between, you know, industrialization of it and, you know, what is actually needed, right? And I think one of the things that is 
you know, being asked here is like, how can we ensure that people not just, you know, 100% count on the awareness team, but really take that self-accountability, that self-awareness and, you know, think about how they are present in the in the space, how they are intervening when they see something, how they are, you know, assisting and caring of others. Because sometimes if there's a structure of awareness people around, people might not actually be as willing to assist others or be as um, perceptive to others' issues or so on. So I think that's, that's you know, a difficult space to navigate. But I think, um, you know, including that in, in your promotion or, you know, including that into um, who you are as, as a collective or as a club, like, we, I think there was care before we came up with awareness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I've been raving for a long time. So you've been out before we talked about awareness. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't like I felt completely alone. But now that there is awareness, a lot of times it might feel more lonely in a way mm-hmm. because people be like, oh, I don't have to take care of it because there's an awareness team. So, um, yeah, just reminding people that ultimately everything is about connection yeah. and connecting and and, you know, setting an intention when you go out and be like, hey, um, I want to connect with people. I want to, you know, I don't want to say bring my best because it's always like this, like, if you don't bring your best, you can't go out. That's not true. But like, you know, contribute basically. Yeah. And contributing means being being present and, you know, connecting with others. And I feel like that's, that's ultimately what we need to kind of nourish and, um, you know, focus on I believe definitely a kind of like a detour but have you ever watched the tv show sex education oh my god yes <laughs> it's so I love good it. it's so good like in terms of you know talking about all these whether it's identity or concern or also they just the most recent season with not too many spoilers also looks into like queer raving and queer club culture they're and taking the, it to another level the, I, the I wept I wept I cried I mean, on multiple occasions it was please so watch good it it's so, so good but I also you know one thing that they said about consent in that was like look for an enthusiastic yes rather than the absence of a no yeah I feel like and and this is also not a spoiler but um I feel like sex education the last season also shows kind of limitations yeah because like this whole awareness structure can be taken to a, a point where it's just like okay yeah we're doing too much yeah. you know what I mean toxic positivity too too <laughs> much like let's let's you know because it ultimately comes down to asking people what they need yeah and then try and get as close as possible to their need. It is not a perfection, it's progress. Yeah. And and yeah, just not to spoiler, but I feel like it's it is a good learning experience to watch the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess my last question for today, I mean, you're doing so much work centered around Berlin and its evolution of its clubs. How do you hope to see Berlin's club scene evolve in the next few years? Mm. I think for the next few years, because we're coming out of such a tough time where we're still kind of in a tough economic time, I really hope that we can keep the diversity in terms of club niches, ranges, yeah, small, big, medium, you know what I mean? Like different music tastes, different, music, different like communities. I, I really appreciate When I say diverse, I really do mean diverse. I don't have to like it for it to be present and existent because ultimately what I want is for people to come to the city and be like, that's my little niche. And I can find it, you know, there's at least five people in the city that dig that music or Mm -hmm. dig that place. And if we can keep most of this diversity, it would be amazing. Um, That's one thing. I would love to see more black 
club owners that's mm-hmm. are like you know there's none so far or very little mm-hmm. that's really the yeah. two for me that's really me the too. two for me and then on an awareness um on an awareness spectrum i feel like there's still a lot of things that we can do yeah. to pick up some clubs that haven't had any touching points but then ultimately also i feel like i want us to move away a little bit too much from the identity politics mm-hmm. and get closer to um to each other again, to mm-hmm. being able to have a dialogue and, um, you know, focus on what connects us mm-hmm. again, rather than what what distinguishes us or you others, know. as you know what I mean? i got to say, sex education also touches upon that as yes, well. Yes, <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> Definitely watch I the want show, everybody guys. that goes out in Berlin to drop what they're doing and start sex education <laughs> right Absolutely. now. We're not getting paid. You know, we're not we're getting not, paid this to not This is not sponsored. It's just that good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it does help understanding like a lot of different contexts for sure. Exactly. And, um, yeah, like ultimately, like having that dialogue again, you know, yeah. like, um, and it's not about I'm femme, I'm black, I'm disabled, I'm not. It's really about hey, we we want to be inclusive, and we like the same things, and you know, I feel like people need to be able to make mistakes to learn and grow, mm-hmm. and we need to be a little resilient in that sense. Like I know I am. I have to I've had to be and and um I feel like it actually helped me grow. Mm-hmm. Um and I want that for everybody in Top Scene too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Um thank you so much, Luan, for joining us for this conversation and best of luck with all of your endeavors, with your agency and all the work that you do. It's very necessary. Um yeah, let's keep it moving. Thank you. Now, let's dive into the other headlines that mattered this week. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. That was the rocket launch of Artemis One, the start of NASA's next moon mission. A truly historic event. Humans are meant to walk on the moon again in 2025, the first manned landing in over 50 years. But what will the astronauts be wearing in space? Prada. I'm not kidding. It's one small step for women, since this mission will also be the first to put a female astronaut on the moon, and one giant leap for Prada. The fashion label announced the next level partnership with Axiom Space, the company responsible for making spacesuits for NASA. In a joint statement, they said Prada engineers will work alongside Axiom Space throughout the design process, developing materials and design features that will protect astronauts in the lunar environment. Turning the moon into a runway may be a difficult act to top for future fashion weeks. Chase the publishing devil out of Earth. You may not know his name, but Max Romeo has sent as many people to outer space as NASA, maybe even more. Romeo's biggest tune, the reggae classic Chase the Devil, was famously sampled by the Prodigy on Outer Space in the early 90s, and Kanye West flipped the vocal for Jay-Z on the Black Album. Gamers might also know Romeo's voice from GTA San Andreas. So a song this iconic should have made the songwriter a whole lot of money, right? Max Romeo claims the opposite. 
He's filed a lawsuit against Universal Music Group and Polygram Records for over $15 million in unpaid royalties. In a report on dancehallmag.com, Remio claims he has not received any royalties from the licensing or sampling of his music for 50 years. He's specifically suing over two albums, War in a Babylon, which includes Chase the Devil and Reconstruction. Both were released in the 70s and produced by the late Lee Scratch Perry and his in-house band, The Upsetters. His team accuses Universal and Polygram of false royalty accounting. Universal and Polygram are predictably arguing against it. It's ironic given that in a New Year's message to his staff, Universal CEO Lucien Grange called for an environment where creators of all music content are fairly compensated. Hmm. Romeo is 78 years old and announced earlier this year that he is retired from touring. Someone that age shouldn't have to play live to survive, and his contributions to the culture should have earned him a small fortune to begin with. Let's wait to see if this true pioneer can get a fair share for his legacy. Donations for the Logdrum. Speaking of originators who deserve more credit and cash, the Amapiano community has come together to donate money to one of the genre's pioneers who came up with this. That's the so-called Logdrum, a key element of Amapiano, which is a South African subgenre of house music. The genre has grown exponentially in popularity and has developed a huge global fan base. Lots of artists from other genres and cultures have been heavily inspired by it since it emerged in the 2010s. Last year, Peter Fox, one of the biggest German pop stars, was even accused of appropriating elements of Amapiano for his song Zukunft Pink, which topped the German charts for five weeks. So, people are making a lot of money using the log drum, but one person who wasn't making money is the actual originator, producer and songwriter Mdu, aka TRP. He's known for his futuristic spin sound. And now, giving credit where credit is due, a number of Amapiano artists are showing love to him in a big way. They have donated over 1 million rand to Mdu, that's almost 50,000 euros. DJ Maporiza, one of the biggest Amapiano producers from South Africa, started the wave by encouraging the community to come together and recognize the work of Mdu in helping Amapiano become the success that it is today. It's a super important move and should remind us how important it is to support these unsung pioneers. There's a lot of people who are responsible for giving birth to whole genres who never got their flowers or fair share. And the log drum isn't the only percussion that has its originators staking a claim. There's an ongoing legal battle related to the Dembao rhythm. The Dembo rhythm is key evidence in the lawsuit that Jamaican duo Steely and Cleavy are bringing against superstars, including Louis Fonzi and Daddy Yankee, claiming that they deserve credit for birthing the reggaeton genre. Steely and Cleavy changed the course of pop music with their song Fish Market in 1989. That track featured the first known example of what would come to be known as the Dembo rhythm. It's a groove that's one foundation of dancehall and reggaeton. You can't typically sue over a groove though, so let's see what happens with this lawsuit. The psychic story behind Gypsy Woman. La da dee da da da, la da dee da da da. I might not sound as good as she did singing it, but that chorus from Crystal Waters' eternal hit, Gypsy Woman, She's Homeless, will sound very familiar to anyone paying the least bit of attention to dance music since the 90s. Mainstream pop too, because it's been sampled by hundreds of artists since it was first released. 
Waters just put out a new track called Dance 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 and took the chance to share a funny backstory behind the making of Gypsy Woman. In an interview with The Guardian, she said that she was working on a prison parole board in Washington, D.C., issuing warrants, when her mum suggested she go see a psychic. Apparently, the psychic told her that she wasn't doing anything with her voice. That suggestion led her to a gig as a backup singer and eventually to meeting the Basement Boys who produced Gypsy Woman. She cut a demo of the infamous Wordless Chorus on a rented four-track machine. Eventually, the real deal was recorded in a literal basement of the Basement Boys and she sang her part in the bathroom. Not bad for a house classic. So next time a psychic gives you a push to consider a career change, keep Crystal Waters in mind. For this week's recommendation, we're sending you to the European culture channel Arta. Arta just released a documentary diving into the depths of how Berlin became what it is today musically. Since the fall of the war, Berlin has made many detours to transform itself from a provincial metropolis to a world metropolis, which today seems to be both a boomtown and ungovernable. The five-part documentary series Capital B tells in a gripping way about how Berlin became what it is today. Capital B draws us into the maelstrom of a unique city and into the battles that have always been fought passionately for one question in Berlin. Who owns the city? The documentary also talks about what role Tresor and Techno played in the 90s and Bar Fum from Zwanzig in the noughties. You can find the link to the documentary in the show notes as always. That's all for the week this week. Thank you for locking in. We are back here next Thursday. Take care and remember to stop scrolling. The Week is a production by Telecom Electronic Beats and ACB Stories. 